It's new series day. We're starting today this new journey called The Weight of Your Words. I'm pumped. New series day for me is like Christmas morning. Um, I mean, in pastor life, when you get to do something brand new, you start a series, you kick something off. I mean, it's as good as gold. As we're doing that, can you guys help me? Uh, we'll clap. We'll do a round of applause in just a second and welcome uh, folks online, our YouTubers, our podcasters, and most importantly, our folks out right, th- right out there at our outdoor venue. We love you guys. We're glad you're here. Can you welcome them with me? And I'll... If I'm going to say one thing through the series over and over and over again, it is that your words probably have more weight than you realize. When I thought about the series, I knew instantly that a great way to start would, would be with a clip from a movie that I think communicates just that. I don't remember it, when it came out, but some of you are familiar with the movie Blood Diamond. And in the movie Blood Diamond, it's this gripping, powerful story uh, that is based on reality. It chronicles the civil war that happened in Sierra, Sierra Leone in 1999. And A rebel group arose in that area. They wanted to overthrow the government. And one of the common practices in that time, and this is true, they would kidnap young children and recruit them, brainwash them, and indoctrinate them to be child soldiers. And this movie was one of the first times people came to understand that and see this. If you watched the movie before, if you recall, it chronicles this man who grew up in Sierra Leone and as he's working in a diamond mine he finds this very powerful or beautiful diamond that's worth a lot of money he hides it and you know people are running and chasing and going after him but the subplot in the story is how this man Solomon Vandy's son gets kidnapped he's tortured he's brainwashed and he's turned in to one of the child soldiers that would then fight for this rebel group. And the movie was powerful because it brought that to light and many people didn't know that that was something that actually happens in our world and so they shine a light on that. And so in this story, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's character is with this man Solomon Vandy and they've hidden this diamond and people are pursuing them and chasing them. And then at the end of the movie, they have an encounter with Vandy's young son who has since become a child soldier. What happens at the end of the movie is incredibly powerful. Check it out right here. Dear, what are you doing? Dear! Young baby, young baby, what are you doing?
And if it communicates anything, it's that our words have weight. Your words are more powerful than you might imagine. And that's why when we go into Scripture, cover to cover, we are reminded of the power and the weight that is in our words. When you read the first two chapters of the Bible, you get this beautiful picture of God creating everything. Heavens, earth, water, light, sky, animals, living creatures and beings. And He creates them through the power of His speech. You roll through the Proverbs and you read the words of the wisest man to ever walk the face of the earth other than Jesus. And Solomon reminds us in Proverbs 12, 18, the words of the reckless pierce like swords. I don't have to explain this verse to some of you. Some of you grew up in households where the words of the reckless pierce like swords, but it says, but the wise, the tongue of the wise brings healing. Proverbs 16.24 says, Gracious words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul, and healing to the bones. James in the New Testament, the brother of Jesus, in James 3.5 would remind us, Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. And listen to the metaphor he uses. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark, as if to say, your words have power. And today we're going to move into our first scripture that we'll pick apart together. I want to invite you to join me in Ephesians chapter 4. I love it when you guys, and you'll see the importance of this in a minute. If you've got a phone, if you've got a Bible, if you've got something with Bible verses on it, I would love for you. I'm going to stall for you, okay? So I, I would love for you to join me. See, it's just there. Ephesians 4. I'd love for you to join me in Ephesians 4 and follow along with me because I don't want you to miss this. Uh, we'll start in about verse 21 and I want you to catch this okay so he's going to speak this is Paul who had an encounter with Jesus totally changed form, transformed his life and, and Paul is going to tell us about the power of words now as you go into Ephesians look at me really quick there's one thing you got to know Paul does the same thing over and over and over in all his letters in Romans and Galatians and all the other writings of Paul he starts by telling us the power the wonder and the truth of the gospel, okay, forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ and faith in him. And then he goes, should you believe that gospel? Should you be found in Christ? Should you lay hold of Jesus? Well, let me tell you about your life and how you live those things out on a day-to-day -day basis, okay? So he starts with gospel, and he goes, if this is your gospel, let me tell you how to be a dad. Let me tell you how to be a mom. Let me tell you how to be a employer, an employee. So gospel, then application, and you're going to see that as these verses unfold. Uh, Ephesians 4, verse 21 through 24, it says, When you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life. What do I do with me, the old me? My former me? What do I do with that? Well, what I'm supposed to do is to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to, here's a key word, put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness, okay? So this is gospel, okay? This is like faith in Christ 101. And if that sounded confusing, yeah, we got this. It's, it's more simple than you think. He's saying, if you're found in Jesus, if you say yes to Jesus, if you give your life to Jesus, you're baptized into Christ, you are made new instantly. New creation 
period. Jesus plus nothing equals everything, okay? So if you're found in Christ and you get baptized, that is not the end of your faith. That is the beginning of your faith. What do you do after that? Well, with the power and help of the Holy Spirit, you put off the old ways and you put on the new ways by the power of God in you. So think NBA, okay? So these finals are amazing. I'm praying for Jimmy Butler. I'm praying for Jimmy Butler. Join me afterwards and we can pray for Jimmy Butler. It's not looking good. Okay, anyways, in the NBA, finals are going to come and then there's going to be some trades that happen and players are going to mix around and you're going to hear about all this, okay? And so... Uh, let's say a player gets traded, and in an instant, two GMs are going to sign a contract. Okay, that player now plays for a new team. His fundamental identity has changed. But after that, he has to go about the business of making changes. Okay, so boom. Baptism, you change. Death to life. Team signed GMs, boom. You're on a new team. But once you're on a new team, now you go to a new locker room. You, new, you learn a new set of plays. You wear a new jersey. You have a new coach. You have a new teammates. And you have to adapt to the new reality. That's what Paul is saying here. If you are found in Jesus, you've given your life to him, repented and been baptized, you are brand new, but that is just the beginning. Now you start the beautiful, spirit-empowered process of becoming what God says you already are. Now, now that you got that, I want you to see something. Paul says, you get Christ, power of spirit, you start to change. I want you to catch this. I want you to see this. The very first thing he says you turn your attention to. So all those chapters about Jesus transforming your life, now it's your turn to participate with Christ. What is the first thing he says next? The first thing, verse 25, the following sentence, therefore, in other words, because you belong to Jesus, here's what you do. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and what? Speak truthfully to your neighbor, for you are all members of one body. Paul begins the conversation about our new life talking about how we talk. He continues in verse 29, and I'm going to warn you as we get into this, this is probably one of the most misunderstood scriptures in the New Testament, but let's go for it, okay? Verse 29, he says this, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Uh, Olivia, could you go back one for me? I just want to see that for a second. I want to sit on that one. Some of you have heard this passage recited to you many times. I know we got some recovering potty mouths, okay? In a church full of sailors, one of y'all's cussing, right? And, 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 and in this verse, this is the one that everyone is so quick to point at and go, this is the one. You shouldn't be swearing anymore. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. And you're going to wash them out that with soap. Some of you got soap in the mouth as a child while this verse was recited to you. And that's our temptation. We're tempted to take this verse and turn it into two lists of words, right? Here's the bad words. Here's good words. Here's the things you're not supposed to say. Here's the things that are okay to say. Here's the four-letter words. And then as Jesus works in you, you start to say words like brethren and blessed and thou. And when you've worked enough of that into your mouth and you've worked enough of that stuff out of your mouth, hot dog, good job, young Christian. You are on your way. My 
friends. That is such a shallow view of what Paul is trying to communicate in these words. Now, uh, middle school, high school students, this is not your pastor telling you it's okay to go home and cuss, okay? No, you're still getting the soap. We can still use this verse in that way. That's not what I'm saying here. But what I'm saying is put on your scuba gear because we're going to go deep in this passage. Our words are actually so much more than a couple of lists. Our words are powerful. Understanding this passage first begins with understanding this idea. Our words shape reality. We got some really talented people who do social media for momentum, and there were a bunch of verses coming out, and I was reading them myself. I was like, wow, that's really good. And I reposted something that one of the people on our social media team did, and my college roommate saw it, and then he commented back to me and goes, Matt, uh, words shape worlds. And I was like, that is such a good way to say what I'm trying to communicate right here. Our words shape reality. Our words create worlds. Your words are shaping the world of the people that you love most. The angry words and the positive words. The grace-filled words and the frustrated words. Your words make worlds. I know this because it's in the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And then what happened? And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good. He separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And the darkness he called night and there were evening and there was morning the first day God with his words shaped and crafted reality as we know it this very passage would go on to tell you and tell me that we are made in the image of God now hold on to that you are made in the image of of God. You are made in the image of a God who crafts reality with his words. When it says we are made in God's image, it is saying we're endowed with the qualities of God mixed into our humanity. He's not saying you are a God. He is saying you've been given God-like qualities, the ability to reason, think, the ability to love. And one of your God-like qualities, and there's nothing you can do about this, is the fact that your words shape worlds. They do. And I'll prove it to you. The singer and musician Sting wrote an amazing biography about his life, his relationship with his parents, his career. Although Sting's still making music today, he teamed, with, teamed up with Shaggy most recently. I don't know how that one, it didn't work out for him, but prior to the Shaggy experiment, Sting was this beyond gifted, just savant, an incredible musician, with a long list of his work. But in his biography, he, autobiography, he talks about one of the last moments he had with his father before his father passed. I want to read a passage from that book to you. This is Sting talking 
first person from his point of view, he says, I'm led into a room there with a single cot against the wall where a crucifix hangs. I haven't seen him in a number of months and on the bed is a man I do not recognize. I imagine for a moment they've put me in the wrong room but the skeleton below me is my father watching me with the bleak staring eyes of a starving child. The nurse who brought me quietly pulls up a chair. Here's your famous son, come to see you Ernie, she says. Oh yeah? I try to compose myself. A part of me wants to run out of the room like a frightened boy. Hello, Dad. I'll leave the two of you alone now. I'm sure you have a lot to talk about, says the nurse. Then she leaves us. I have no idea what to say, so I take his hand in mine and gently massage the soft triangle of flesh between his thumb and his first finger. I haven't held this hand since I was small. Their big square hands, massively knuckled with strong muscular fingers, deeply lined and grooved. My father's hands are not the delicate, expressive hands of an artist, but they have a kind of elegance so close to death they possess an honest, translucent beauty, the hands of a working man. Where did you come from, son? I came from America last night, Dad. He chuckles. It's a long way to come see your dad like this. You were feeling better a month ago. He shakes his head. I haven't been the same since your mother died. I remain silent, not knowing how much that small confession cost him. I reach for his other hand and begin to massage it, but he winces. I wonder how much pain he's in. Perhaps he needs another shot of morphine. He seems a hundred years old now. I look from his eyes to the cross on his wall and then down to the two hands cradled in mine. It is then that I receive something like the jolt of an electric shock because apart from the color, his hands and mine are identical. The square width of the palm, the same carved scars in the folds of skin, the big wide knuckles wrinkled like the knees of an elephant, the musculature fanning out from the wrist to the thick, but still powerful fingers. I stare at them for a long time, turning them over and over. Why have I never noticed this before when it was so obvious? We have the same hands, Dad, look. I'm a child again, desperately trying to get his attention. He looks down at the four separate slabs of flesh. I, son, but you used yours better than mine. There's absolute quiet in the room. There's something like a small bird fighting to get out of my throat. I can hardly breathe. My mind is racing, trying in vain to remember when he'd ever paid me such a compliment, when he'd ever acknowledged who I was or what I did or what I achieved or what it cost me. He had waited till now when the words would be devastating. His eyes closed as if the last few minutes have exhausted him. It's dark outside. I kiss him softly on the center of his forehead and whisper that he's a good man. And I love him. I want you to feel the room we're in right now. 
the room is shaped by a reality that it wasn't shaped by just two minutes ago. The only thing that changed that reality were some words. Our words have weight. Parents, your words have more weight than you could ever realize in the lives of your children. Employers, your words have more weight than you could ever imagine in the lives of your employees. Your words have weight. Our words have the power to destroy. In chapter 4, verse 29, we get that simple phrase, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Now our words, unwholesome talk here, Paul borrows from the agricultural culture around him. This unwholesome talk is literally the picture of rotting fruit. If you've ever observed, we, um, we go shopping. I, I, you know, groceries are outlandish right now, but I still like going to Sprouts because when you shop in season at Sprouts, you can take the house, okay? And, and I, I live for that. And, and if you shop in season at Sprouts, they're still giving away strawberries, okay? So you, get, you get them on the right day, double coupons. You got your eggs at regular price. And so you can still, one of my favorite things on earth to do is go rolling up to the checkout lane, and, and then I got a grocery just loaded with produce. And the, I unload the cart, and it goes down the conveyor belt. And the lady's beeping and checking and working and bagging. And then I'm just grinning ear to ear. And she looks at me, and she goes, $12.99? I'm like, I know, right? Like, this is the coolest. And, and you can get the, the groceries and the produce really cheap. Now, I don't know how their business model works. I don't know how they do it. But here's the trade-off. The trade-off is every now and then something goes bad on you, like when it shouldn't have. It looked great. You, you, like, you go to the fridge, you, you put the banana here, you go to the fridge, you get some milk, you turn around, the banana's just dead. I don't know how that works. It happens. And so recently, we had some peaches go bad. Okay, these are some rotten. These aren't my peaches. These are someone else's peaches. But I just, you know, visual aid, you know, so you got some peaches. And, and what happened with the peaches is they started rotting. And here was the craziest thing about the peaches. When the peaches were rotting, you could see, like, all the top peaches were fine. And then as you went into this little corner of the basket where the peaches were, they were starting to rot. And as you got down to the deep bottom little peach in the corner, the guy who started it all, you could see that this peach had started by going bad. And what was bad on this peach had spread its way to the other peaches. And when Paul says unwholesome talk, he's talking about rotten peaches. He's talking about words that decay. He's talking about words that break down lives. He's talking about words that rob people of futures. He's talking about words that tear churches apart. And he's very right in using this language because what he's trying to get at is the fact that it spreads from one to another and spreads decay. So when he says, no unwholesome talk, he's saying, I don't want anything coming from you that will decay others, that will decay Jesus, or that will decay his church. That's what Paul means. When he says, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. And so I just want to share a few of the ways we see this play out in, in our time. There's three examples. Number one, it's seed planting. Seed planting is where 
someone asks a question, and it's really not about the question they're asking. When they ask the question, they're trying to plant a seed or make a statement about another person. Seed planting is when you ask questions about another or bring up concerns about another with the intent to shade people's point of view about that person. Seed planting is, isn't it weird how they're never here when it's their time to help? Oh, isn't it weird how she always, isn't it weird how he never, and you're asking a question, so that sounds cute, that sounds inquisitive, but you're not actually asking a question, you're trying to draw people's attention to somebody's character defect because it makes you feel better about you, that's rotten peaches. There's information gathering. It's when you're inquiring about somebody's life, something happening with somebody. And your motive is not to get an answer, to learn the story, or to hear how you can help. Information gathering is toxic when your motivation down underneath it all is to feast on how bad they're doing so you can feel a little bit better about yourself. Whatever happened to so-and-so? Hey, they, they used to work right there. How come they got moved? Hey, uh, you ever hear back from them? Oh, no, they never called you back either? Interesting. It creates decay. Last one. I think this would be really good for him. I, I think this would be really good for her. Now, this one's sneaky, okay? Because back in the day in Christian communities, if you wanted to gossip, you would just work that bad boy into the prayer request. Anybody else grow up in a church where uh, there were some prayer requests made and you weren't able to tell if they were really requesting prayer or if they were trying to report the news to the prayer circle? Remember that? Oh, we need to be praying for so-and-so because, woo-wee! Oh man, we better pray for her because she's not at church today. And if you looked at the TikTok and she was out there ticking and talking and uh, she's not here at church today, let's pray for her. Are we praying for her? Or are you trying to tell me about her life? Because I can't tell. But we wised up, right? We, we don't do that one anymore. That got sniffed out. And so now the transition is, man, I think this will be really good for her. I mean, her kids are a mess. She's never anywhere on time. Her outfit's stinking. Her hair's always a mess. I'm glad she's going to that Bible study. I think they're going to be good for her. Oh, this will be really good for him. Oh, that was a great sermon. I, you know who needs to hear this? Is, I'm gonna, hey, I can't wait to text this to Joe. Because, oh, <laughs> let me tell you about Joe. And there's a difference. What I'm trying to say, and I can't judge your heart, you can't judge my heart, only God can do that. What Jesus would go on to say is that the words come, that come out of our mouths display what's going on in our hearts. And so if one of these landed too close to home, my application step for you is not to just zip your lips and do better with the things you say. The application step would be get your heart open before God because he's got some work to do in there. When God fixes your heart, your language follows. Words can destroy 
but words can also build up and bring ease. I'll draw your attention to another part of our passage. Verse 29, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is what? Helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. Just sit on that phrase, building others up. This is where our words become a holiness issue. See, holiness is not choirs and robes and white lights. Holiness is when we reflect the character qualities of God to the world around us. I am holy when I am godly. I am holy when I'm like Jesus. I am holy when I am reflecting who God is and the way he handles things and what he is like to the world around me. That's holiness. Now, we have a God who speaks life and encouragement. He speaks life and encouragement. When I build others up, when I speak life to you, when I speak encouragement to you, I am being holy because I am being like God quick application step on this, okay? This came after about 15 years of youth ministry, and we learned something about kids. It's pretty obvious when I'm going to tell it to you, but here's the shocker. I've learned that this isn't just a youth ministry principle. This is an all-people principle. We see it in the youngins because their lives are so transparent and they move so quickly and it's kind of on display, but this happens with adults, too, who have learned to cover up their baggage. This is a simple principle. It'll change any one of your relationships. It'll change your marriage. It'll change your parenting. It'll change work relationships. It's the simple principle of speaking life and blessing. Here it is. People become what you call them. Your spouse will become what you call out of them. Your children will become what you call out of them. Your team will become what you call out of them. Half of Jesus' ministry was just calling the best out of people. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, that was given to you by God and not man. I've never seen faith in all of Israel like the faith in this Roman centurion. That woman with bleeding, she reaches out, she touches Jesus' robe, and she's healed. But Jesus doesn't just say, poof, you're healed. He looks down at the woman and says the word, daughter. Because he knew the power of words. Your words have unimaginable power to build people up. And they have unimaginable power to bring ease. If we look back at our 4, 4, 29 and 30, there's one other key word in that passage. It says, why do we do that? That it may benefit those who listen. There's something really cool Paul does here, and I'm going to get nerdy and Greek for you, for, with you for a minute, okay? The original language that this was written in is the Greek language, so when Paul was penning letters, he wasn't doing English characters, he was doing Greek characters, and when he says benefit right there, the word he pens is the word charis. That's what it would have looked like coming off of Paul's pen. We translate the word charis, grace, which totally changes the meaning of that sentence if you sit down with it for a minute because Paul is then saying your words are supposed to be grace to the people who hear them. When you experience God's grace, you become more alive. When you experience God's grace, you become more free. When you experience the grace of God, it feels like your soul is being nourished. If I ask the people who are closest to you, would they say that they feel nourished by your words? 
So I'm going to get extremely practical here. Like this is your homework assignment. This is your application step. Uh, I got this from Britt. She has been pumping grace into our household with one tiny phrase. And, and I, I can't stand on this, but I could make a good case that this might be the most grace-filled phrase you can say to somebody in our culture in this day and age. In our culture right now, with everything moving a mile a minute, and the Trader Joe's parking lot always has too many cars, and they're always one step behind, and we're all overwhelmed, and we all have a lot going on, and none of us feel like we have enough time, Brit has been saying this phrase to me over and over and over again, and it has injected grace into our household. I'm just giving you this as a simple, practical step if you're looking for something with handles today. Here's the phrase. Take your time. That will change your household. We've got places to be, and we're all loading kids into the van, and it's a big old chore, and we're trying to get there, and we're short on time, and then darn it, my wallet's in the, car, in the house, and we're in the car, and we're supposed to be there, and I start grumping. Okay, ladies, anybody live with a grumpy man? No, no, don't show, don't raise your hand. I'm just kidding. No, but, but I'm grumping, and I'm going to the bad place because we got somewhere to be, and then she looks at me, and she goes, hey, take your time. And it changes things in that moment. We've been doing it with the kids. Penny is late for school, and we have this rule that you never rush the pip, okay? That's a rule in our house. You just don't rush her because she'll blow, and it's not pretty. And, and so she's, however it works, she's the most upset about being late places, and she's never the one who's on time. And, and we'll go to her, and she's a, a mess, and she's like, I, it's a long story. And, and then we'll just go to her, and Penny, 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 take your time, babe. When somebody sends you that text message, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. We're not going to be there. I'll be there as soon as I can. Do you know what you do for that person if you just take out your phone and you text back the words, take your time? You're breathing grace into that relationship. And God's word says, your words are not about these two lists. Your words are supposed to breathe life and grace into the people around you. Which is why I'll land on this. This is our last idea of the morning. Our words are a stewardship issue. Our words are a stewardship issue. If they were a legalistic issue, then I would have just told you about the two lists. I would say, hey, underneath your seat, there are two lists, everyone. And we were a bunch of legalists. You could pull out your words and you could see this list of bad words. And you could say this list of good words. And you could go home and you could practice. And you could build a little system where you correct each other. And you could have a swear jar. And you put the quarters in the swear jar. And then it would be easy. But our words are not a legalist issue. They're not a legalism issue. They're a stewardship issue. The stewardship, if you're not familiar with the concept, is just what are you doing with what you've been given? You've been given words. You have the ability to speak. Should you have the ability to speak, you have been given a gift that can change lives, a gift that can transform, a gift that can build up, a gift that can speak grace. You can shape reality because you have the ability to speak. It's a stewardship issue. It's the Peter Parker principle. You guys remember Spider-Man, right? Not the new kid, okay? That is not, Tom Holland is not my Spider-Man. 
Tobey Maguire is my Spider-Man. And this is what Aunt May is supposed to look like, not that lady they changed her into. And that's what Uncle Ben looks like. And if you know the Spider-Man story, you know that the young Peter Parker is on the field trip and he gets bit by the spider. You know that he wakes up the next morning and his vision is corrected. He accidentally shoots a web across the room. He's starting to hide what's going on in him and he's undergoing this transformation. He's starting to learn that he can stick to walls and that he has extraordinary abilities and this spider bite has in fact become this blessing because he has all of this power that he's never had before. And so the same school bully that used to bully him a couple weeks before sees him in the hallways of the school and tries to punch young Peter Parker in the face and the punch goes by almost in slow motion because now Peter Parker can move so fast. And he hasn't yet fully become Spider-Man but he beats the tar out of this bully and good old Uncle Ben has been watching the whole time and he knows something's happening. He doesn't know what yet. And so when Peter is sent home from school, good old ben, Uncle Ben sends him down for a talk. And what does he say? With great power comes great responsibility. My friends, you have been given more power than you could ever imagine you have been endowed with unimaginable power through the weight of your words. Your responsibility and mine is to use them to build up, breathe grace, and bring life. Let's pray.